It's a wonderful and somewhat strange thing to be with you on Good Friday. This is one of my favorite services of the church year, but I think it's somewhat of a countercultural thing that we do. There aren't many circumstances in life where someone will come up to you and say, I would like to take a couple months and talk about death with you. We don't love talking about suffering. We don't usually embrace that, let alone for this amount of time, let alone with this intensity. But I think it is a wonderful thing that we keep, a wonderful thing that we do, and something that's deeply necessary for us as we live in a world in which suffering and in which death have such a strong role to play and in which inevitably they will have a role to play in each of our lives. And I hope today that as we look at the most important death in history that that we will learn something new, that we will grow closer to him more than anything, that we will, in a new way, see his love for us and be moved and be changed by it. Now, each of the gospel accounts, as Bill was saying, this uh, yesterday and on Sunday, each of the gospel accounts focuses on different details of the passion story. They each give their own slightly different twist on it, not contradicting each other, but giving different aspects of the story, different things that help them to make the point that they're making. And those details are something that are helpful for us to pay attention to. They help us to hone in on what it is that this particular author is saying, and not just a brush over it of, oh, I know that story. Right? We get into the particulars, and it helps us to, to take a new and a fresh look at it. So John, for instance... More than any of the others, he focuses on fulfillments of prophecy over and over, he says, and this happens to fulfill what was written, and this happens to fulfill what was written. Matthew gives the most emphasis to the mockery that Jesus receives on the cross. He spends more time on that than the others. Mark and Matthew both, probably coming from the same source, are the only two that recount those words that we began the service with, uh, Jesus's quoting and, and taking to himself of those words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so understanding these distinctives in each of the Gospels helps us to see what is it that this particular writer is trying to get me to see in this story. In the case of Luke's Gospel, one of his unusual emphases is on the criminals. The other Gospels each mention them, but usually just to say, and Jesus was uh, crucified with others, with criminals or with robbers. They put it in a single sentence and leave it there. But Luke sees some more specific importance to those criminals. He has this particular theme, a particular point that he wants to make by focusing in on them for a while. So what is important? What, what is so important that Luke should call us to look at these criminals, to understand why Jesus was not crucified alone, but in the company of others, in the company particularly of these undignified others. On the one hand, this is entirely in line with what Jesus did his whole earthly ministry. In every instance that he was expected to spend his time with the wealthy, with the well-to-do, the prominent and the powerful, instead he chose to spend his time with, with the poor, the tax collectors the sinners and the prostitutes. And so it's fitting that this man who spent his life in such unimpressive company would die in similarly unimpressive company, in the group of common criminals. 
Earlier in his ministries, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus, Jesus famously responds, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And to the very end, that is where we see Jesus. It's a wonderful thing as we come to him to know that to the very end of his life, he was choosing to be among the least and the lowest, the sinners, the criminals. Now, on the other hand, we can say not only that Jesus associated with the least and the lowest that he associated with criminals, but he identified himself with those people. He identified himself with the criminals, with the sinners, with the outcasts. He identified himself with them so that they might be identified with him in turn. He identified himself with the poor so that they might in him have riches which moth and rust cannot destroy and which thieves cannot break in and steal. Right? He identifies himself with the sick so that in him they might have health and life, with the thirsty so that they might have founts of living water. And ultimately, he identified himself with criminals so that in him they might be counted blameless. You see this throughout Jesus' life that he identifies with those who are in need so that they might have all that is in him that supplies everything that they need. We read in verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, I love that he points that out. He gives no sign that he is trying to get out of his charges. He says, no, we indeed justly, I did what they said I did. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's hard to tell how much the thief understood. Right? What, could, could the thief have, have explained the Trinity to us? Could the thief have gone into exactly who he knew Jesus to be and what, what Jesus was doing? Could he have really laid out the gospel? I don't know. I don't think we have an answer to that. We do see that clearly by the power of the Holy Spirit, he knew something that I don't think he would have known on his own. He had an ability to respond, to put his faith in Jesus that I don't think was present in him on his own. I think we see what happens by the power of the human will alone in the other thief. He says, Jesus, I would like to live. I don't think we can blame him for that, really. <laughs> but I think that is what the human spirit does on its own. Hanging on a cross, suffering and dying, it says, Jesus, you have the power to get me out of this. Please do that. And yet this other thief, by this incredible illumination of the Holy Spirit, says, Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What amazing grace, even to see his need, even to see the possibility that was there in Christ. And in return, he heard good news from Jesus. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The point that he makes to the thief is not that he would never die. In fact, we assume from these verses that he died that very same day. Jesus says, truly today, not eventually, not some other day, but today. Truly today you'll be with me in paradise. 
But for the thief on the cross, as Paul would later write, death had lost its sting. For the thief on the cross, the grave, for the thief on the cross, rather, the grave had no victory. The kingdom of this world caused him no fear because his hope and his inheritance had come to be in a different kingdom. And so Jesus died among them. He died as a criminal. He died as a sinner, not because he deserved it, but because we deserved it. The thief on the cross deserved it, as he himself admitted, and you and I deserve it. Paul wrote in the third chapter of his epistle to the Romans, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You and I, good as we may think we are, we stand condemned. And in case you think Paul was just uptight, he was just bitter, he was just you know, navel-gazing and, and kind of had some shame issue, hear what Jesus has to say. Hear what good and meek and lowly Jesus says. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You see, God, when he looks at our lives, when he contemplates the reality of sin, he is not unduly cruel, he is not unduly harsh, and yet he understands it in a way that we tend not to want to understand our sin. We find all sorts of ways to feel as if our sin isn't that serious. We compare ourselves to people we feel better than. We minimize it and say, well, I didn't do this. I haven't murdered, so I'm probably okay. God wouldn't care about my sins. And yet, here's the gospel. You are a sinner. You are a criminal. You're on the run from God's justice. It doesn't start out as good news, does it? (laughs) But there's no way around the fact that that is the beginning of the gospel message. You are a sinner and you are a criminal. But just as there's no way around that fact, there's no way to Jesus but through that fact. Jesus died on your behalf. He took the punishments that you and I deserved because you were a sinner. And yet he did it so that you may have that which was rightfully his, that you might be a son of God, adopted into his family, that you might have life, everlasting life to the full, joy and peace perfect in him. Jesus did not die on the cross for people whose lives were put together. Jesus did not die on the cross for people who were good enough. If you came to him and told him all the reasons he should accept you, all the reasons he should be impressed by you, he would have none of you. And yet, if you come to him as one in need, then you come to the physician of your soul. You come to the one who came to die for the criminals, the one who hung on the cross that we deserved to hang on. 
This is who we're called to be as we contemplate the cross. Not a people who come to Jesus with our lives put together, but a people who come to Jesus messy and sinful, on the run from God's law, on the run from justice, and yet seeing as the thief saw that here is a man to whom I can entrust my soul. Here is a man to whom I can say, remember me when you come into your kingdom and who will say back to me by his grace, truly today you will be with me in paradise. I'm going to tell two short stories as we close and then we'll sing one more song and Bill will read our final reading of the evening and we will depart in silence as is traditional on Good Friday. We will depart and contemplate the cross, remember the cross, embrace the depth of the sadness of the cross as we walk out of here. But first, two quick stories. There's an older man who I would spend a good amount of time with as a child. He was kind of a friend of a friend of the family, and because of the friend of the family, we would end up spending a lot of time with them. He had been an engineer in the Navy in World War II, um, and he loved to tell stories, um, particularly loved to tell the same stories. <laughs> um, and so as a child, I, I was not particularly endeared of this man, not least because those stories would repeat and that they would really ramble on. Uh, but also, he had a catchphrase that he would put at the end of just about every story. He would get through the story, which inevitably involved him saving the day from some uh, incompetence among his superiors and, and him you know, playing, playing the hero. And he would get to the end, he would say the words, that's just the sort of man I am. Every story, that's just the sort of man I am. It was clear from the stories what kind of man that he conceived of himself to be. He was the sort of man with common sense that other people just somehow didn't get. He was the sort of man who got stuff done. He was the sort of man, I think he felt, that should have been wealthier and better thought of and more appreciated than he had been. A man who was, who was really good enough but hard done by. And I tell this story not, not, to, you know, not to make fun of him. He was, I think, in many ways a, a good man. He had served his country. Um, the point is not whether he was a good man or not. The point is that we all have some of that spirit within us. That's just the sort of man I am. We all love to look at ourselves. We all like to rehearse our strengths from time to time. I think if you came up to me and asked, what are you good at, I could give you a list. <laughs> it's the kind of people that we are. We're people who like to look put together. We're not people who like to talk about our weaknesses and our faults, our sins. We are people who have a hard time, I think, identifying with that thief next to Jesus on the cross. Sometimes I think we have a hard time coming to Jesus as criminals, as sinners, desperately in need of someone to take our place on the cross. We can feel not joy but shame in that moment. We feel like we should have been better. Aren't I the sort of person who doesn't need that kind of thing? Aren't I the sort of person that Jesus would just like? And the truth is he does like you, but he doesn't like you because you're that likable. I'm going to tell one more quick story, and I promise we'll, we'll move on. When I was, I don't remember how old I was, but my grandfather, I was the last of my grandparents 
alive, and he was in the last months of his life. Uh, he had moved into hospice, and it was pretty clear he had cancer that they had decided at that point they weren't going to be able to treat, and he was, he was really a few weeks away from, from the end. And Sarah and I went up, and we spent some time with him, and we brought instruments, um, a guitar. I brought a marimba in, into his hospice center. Sarah brought our flute, and we played hymns, and we played music for him. I think it brought him a lot of joy. But I remember at one point, we played the hymn Amazing Grace. I think it's been played at probably every funeral, every (laughs) memorial service of all time. But we played that song, and his eyes teared up. And he said something I really wasn't expecting him to say. His eyes teared up, and he looked up at us, and he said, that was Ma's song. Ma was what he called my grandmother. He said, that was Ma's song. I thought at that moment, what a beautiful testimony. We're not a people who are called to say, that's just the sort of man I am. We're the sort of people when somebody sings, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a criminal like me. I once was blind, but now I'm found. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That's the testimony of a godly woman. That's the testimony that we each, I think, want others to tell of us. When you sing the songs of God's amazing grace, they think that was his song, that was her song. A people who are not put together, but a people who are amazed by what God has done. Amazed to watch Jesus suffering and dying on the cross because of his love for us. A people amazed by that love. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see.